0: You're tuned in to the Manjeet Minhas podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Manjeet Minhas podcast, a show where we sit down with entrepreneurs, business experts, and industry leaders to dissect their journey and gain some insight into the challenges they faced along the way. Many entrepreneurs innovate, whether it's in their product, services, or their methods and strategies in the business itself. My guest today was looking to innovate a product. Unbreakable Pantyhose. The CEO and founder of Sheertex is joining me today to talk about her journey. Without further ado, Catherine Hometh, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Catherine, thank you so much for being here with me today to chat about your journey. Uh, I see that you are uh, in your Montreal factory and your headquarters, so I appreciate you taking the time to chat today. So let's start uh, kind of back in the beginning. Where is Catherine from? Where did she grow up? Where did she go to school? I grew up in Mississauga, so
1: just outside of Toronto. I have one sister. She's three years older. Uh, My mom is a hairdresser and a school bus driver. And my dad had worked in finance and in banks most of the time when I was growing up uh, and is now just retiring off of being a professor at Sheridan, So I grew up really not expecting that I would end up in the world of entrepreneurship. Didn't really have many people around me that were running businesses or starting businesses, but I always had this just curiosity, I guess. People that I tended to admire in the world were... Uh, I think from the early days when I was like 10 years old, I loved Richard Branson. I loved Oprah Winfrey. I loved mm-hmm. these stories of these people who seemed to build something from nothing. And I was the kid that was selling cards to teachers that I had made by hand. My sister brought mm-hmm. a bag back from school that I thought was so cute. And I took my mom to the craft shop so we could sew a bunch of them so I could sell them to my friends. So at <laughs> a really early age, I always had an idea or something that I was doing in the background.
0: Oh interesting yeah and and so what did you think that your career would be um since obviously at that age you didn't think that you'd be an entrepreneur what did what did you imagine yourself doing
1: i thought that i was going to end up in banking okay. um kind of inspired by my dad i thought i would end up in securities maybe as a stock trader and when i was i think i was 16 or 17 i got a job at a bank and I was a bank teller. I think I was maybe a bit too young to be a bank teller, but I, (laughs) I, I was one anyway. And I picked up a copy of uh, the Canadian securities course. And I was like, I am going to be the youngest person to ever pass the Canadian securities course. And I think I got five pages in and I was like, "Nope, (laughs) not, not happening. I am not able to finish this course. It's so boring. I just couldn't get into it. And Mm -hmm. in that moment, I realized this was probably not going to be my path, but what had been happening in the background is I had joined a business club at my high school. And one of the events that they made available to us was something called the Impact Entrepreneurship Conference. And Mm. it was the first year that they had ever let high school students go. And I went and I had the opportunity to meet tech entrepreneurs. Uh, I met the Kielberger brothers, and they were just building Free the Children. And uh, I was so inspired by all of these entrepreneurs and their stories. And it was the first time I think I'd ever heard the word entrepreneur in any real way. And after that, I just started surrounding myself with, you know, these types of events and these types of people. And I actually joined that organization and started planning their conferences with them. And by 2008, when I was 18, I was chairing the same conference and I ended up recruiting probably dozens and dozens of entrepreneurs to come speak At that conference, all of my friends quickly became developers, mostly going to the University of Waterloo, which was not where I went, but I think I regretted it because I just was so envious of the the tech culture. And from then on, I just knew it. That was my path. And from there going to university, I'd say that my greatest frustration is I didn't know what startup to put my energy into. I didn't have an idea. And instead, I just started consulting for other entrepreneurs, surrounding myself with people doing interesting things, had a couple false starts uh, throughout university. And by the end of university, I'd say I was reasonably depressed that I hadn't found the thing. Uh, Because at that point, it had felt like four years that I knew this was my path, but I couldn't figure it out. And so what I decided to do was just go work at a startup after school. And I figured by working at a startup, I could get really close to the source, learn from an entrepreneur directly. And so my first job out of school was working for Ecobee, the inventors of one of those smart thermostats in the very early days. And this was before the Nest thermostat. And I was there uh, for 10 months. I finally took the leap and, and started my first real venture.
0: Got it. And that first real venture was Shop Locket in 2014, correct? Yeah, exactly. And so, what were you hoping to achieve uh, with Shop Locket?
1: I don't think I really—I was so naive. I don't think I knew what <laughs> I wanted, which
0: I to honestly think <laughs> is the best thing, not only about being young, but yeah. about being an entrepreneur. I truly believe in researching and getting, you know, as many of your ducks in a row. But I truly believe that being naive is often the greatest blessing. Because if you knew everything about what you're about to get into, you probably <laughs> wouldn't start. <laughs> no. And
1: I I just knew that I needed to start something. I, mm-hmm. I needed to do it. And th- that original idea came from the fact that um, actually at that first conference I had planned back in 2008, Toby Luki from Shopify was mm-hmm. one of the speakers. And we kept in touch and at the beginning of that year, I think the year was um, 2011, Shopify had launched their theme store. And I found out about it very, very early. I think they had barely launched it. And one of the things that Toby had said was that they didn't have many themes on the mm-hmm. theme store. And I thought, that's a cool opportunity. So I was graduating from school, starting my job um, at Ecobee. And I worked with a friend who was a developer. I was, had no <laughs> tech skills at the time. I paid my friend to build the theme and the deal was we would split profits and I would handle all the support. And we launched this theme and it took off. And all of a sudden I had all of these customers that I was supporting and I was helping them get their store ready. Meanwhile, doing my day job. I realized that this was the, the time where people had shop.theirwebsite.com and right. their website was very different to the actual shop on Shopify. and I couldn't understand why they looked so different. Why couldn't we just embed commerce on the website that people had already invested so much in in putting up there and that had their brand? And I tried to work with Shopify to kind of build this embeddable version of Shopify. It turned out it really didn't work within the Shopify world and infrastructure. And so I ended up deciding that I would try to make this solution on my own. And that was the genesis of what Shoplocket was. It was this idea for embeddable commerce. And it ended up becoming more of a pre-order platform. So this was also the time where Kickstarter was taking off. Mm, And our customers were the exact opposite of what I thought they would be. I thought we would have the least sophisticated customers who had maybe a WordPress blog and they just wanted a quick way to sell things. And it turned out that our customers were the most sophisticated. Mm. They were web developers with beautiful website. They wanted the maximum amount of control and then they wanted to add commerce in an easy way. And it took us probably about a year after uh, kind of like deciding to, to take the jump to start to start up, to actually figure out that that was our customer.
0: Yeah. That's an interesting uh, point because I do think that a lot of people especially when they're startup, you dream of who your buyer might be and that buyer persona that we really all hear a lot about. Uh, But often it is not who you think it's going to be. And a lot of companies don't make it or they fail uh, very quickly or they die a slow death because they haven't figured out who they actually are selling to, not who they want to be selling to. And I think that you know, for you to realize that uh, is not only really interesting, but also a very eye-opening of you guys to understand that who is actually buying into your product and who your customer is. And so during, uh, other than who your customer was, what other obstacles did you hit in, a, in the early stages of your entrepreneurial journey? Well, my
1: dream in the very early stages was that we were going to get into Y Combinator, uh, the accelerator out of Mountain View, and, and then it was just going to be you know a rocket ship. It was going to be easy. And I quit my job before we heard whether we got an interview from Y Combinator because at the end of the day, I didn't want this accelerator to determine whether or not I was going to do this startup. And we ended up actually getting rejected. We didn't get an interview, was Mm -hmm. so disappointed. And it was probably two days after we got rejected that I saw that one of the partners from YC was going to be in Waterloo. So Mm -hmm. this is very rare. They do not come to Canada very often. And I was like, I am going to drive to Waterloo and I am going to convince them that they need to interview us. And this was a pretty rough time for me personally, because my co-founder who had said they were going to start this with me and it helped make the first prototype actually decided she no longer wanted to be part of the company after we didn't get into YC. And that same week, my boyfriend had broken up with me. So I was having a pretty bad week, Um, but I got up, drove to Waterloo And I had a friend who was going to try to coordinate me running into this partner. Mm -hmm. And I sat there all day from like 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. And at the end of the day, my friend comes up to me and they're like, sorry, didn't really work out today, but come back tomorrow. Not realizing that I didn't live in Waterloo, I had driven there (laughs) for this purpose. So I drove back to Toronto. And then the next day, I went back to Waterloo. And the same thing sort of happened. It was getting to like 4 p.m. I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is going to happen another day in a row. And I saw this partner from YC walking down the hallway um, Mm -hmm. and talking to someone about going to catch their flight. And I was like, no, they are not leaving before we talk. And I followed them down the hallway, gave my pitch. And they're like, yeah, this is kind of cool. Let me go chat with folks. And the next day I got a call. We had gotten an interview my, my co-founder had like jumped back on board. We were flying off to Mountain View. I'd never been down to Silicon Valley before. Mm. Just like getting to meet all of these other founders that were interviewing, getting to meet the partners. I was so energized. And this is not a like perfect fairy tale ending story. We didn't get in. Ah. But the experience right. of having someone believe even that little bit and right. then going down and getting energized, I was so in, I was going to make this happen. And I ended up coming back, still being like, not feeling the best, obviously, after the Naturally. rejection. And I had a friend come over who we'd only met um, about three months earlier, but we had quit our jobs on the same day to go jump into our own startups. Her name's Heather Payne. She's now the CEO of Juno College. And I was bemoaning my experience and we were drinking a bit too much wine. And she says, partway through the the, the dinner, you know what? I'm going to invest. I'm going to put 10K into this. And I was looking across the table to someone who was basically my age and didn't seem right. like they would have this money. And I was like, really? What? She's like, yeah, you know, it's like half the money that I have, but still, I believe in you and I'm going to do this. I'm like, that's crazy. You shouldn't yeah. do this. Let's wait till like maybe the wine has worn off tomorrow and see if you still want to do this. And she did ultimately end up making the investments worth best friends still today. We've invested in each other's businesses multiple times over. And I don't even think the 10K was what mattered. Again, it was just her believing. And we ended up getting into another accelerator here in Toronto. We ended up raising a million in financing within about six months of that conversation. And then we sold the company just 18 months later. Uh, So it was quite quite a wild ride for, for my first venture.
0: I, you know what I truly I love about that story is that I've always been one who yells from the rooftop that you need to have people around you that support and that believe in you. And it doesn't matter really who they are. They were family in my case uh, when I started out, my parents definitely were the one that supported and believed in us. They didn't invest in us, but we didn't take any money from anybody else. but but I truly do believe that you do need whether it be colleagues or friends, or whether it even be institutional investors, every startup or every entrepreneur definitely needs that backing somebody to say, yes, I believe in you. And, and that's really great that, you know, in, and you say it's not a fairy tale ending, but I truly believe it was because it is something that got you not only started, but made you believe in yourself rather than, um, necessarily going to out, out, outward you know, uh, people to do that for you. And also, I think the the interesting part is it really showed your grit and determination. It's so similar to my uh, first story as to how I found my first supplier. I went to Texas, so I took two flights instead of drove down to Texas to find a supplier. And I it essentially, you know, stalked him the entire <laughs> day because I really wanted him to be my supplier. And then very shortly after, my mentor too. And so I do think that a lot of these things how we get you know, people involved in our lives or how things happen. Some are serendipitous, right place, right time. But often as entrepreneurs, you have to put yourself in the right place and the right time yeah. in order to, <laughs> to happen. And, and, and that's very purposeful. So that's really quite interesting how you, how you got that, but also how you didn't let it break your spirit.
1: Well, and it's funny, the whole story really does go full circle because we did end up going through Y Combinator for sure tax. Mm-hmm. So, what was it, seven years later, and this was probably the chip on my right. shoulder, I was right. like, I'm going back, I'm getting in this time, and probably didn't even need it as much this time around, but really
0: saw that as something I wanted to be part of my story. So, you sold Shop Locket and then you moved on to f- founding an angel investment group under the name Female Funders. And so, there, your mission was to empower a thousand women to make their first angel investment, which I find really interesting. Uh, so, talk to me about what your strategy and your goal was there.
1: It really goes back to that first moment when Heather Payne made that first investment in Shop Locket. And I had personally experienced just how powerful it was to have someone believe in you and how even the smallest amount of money could kickstart something so much bigger. And what I'd also noticed after I had sold Shoplocket and started doing a little angel investing myself was that so often I was the only woman on a cap table. And I was both learning so much personally, being an angel investor, I found I got to learn about how other people's businesses worked. I got to learn about investments you know, in more ways than just how did you fund your own company? And I realized that A, there were a lot of female entrepreneurs not getting funded because maybe their ideas didn't resonate or their network didn't include you know, a lot of the male angel investors that are out there, but also women who were missing out on this incredible learning and networking opportunity that was angel investing. And I think when I started talking to a lot of my friends, there was this kind of fear about angel investing as a black box that they didn't really understand didn't know, you know, how they would find good deals, didn't understand the mechanics of how it works. A lot of people thought that you had to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to make an angel investment. Some people had seen friends put way too much money into one company and lose everything and have been kind of scarred by watching that. And I thought that if you could just pull back the covers and show people that this is not a dark art. Um, right. This is, this is something that you can do and you can manage your risk and, um, you can actually learn a lot, you know, uh, take, take 10,000 that you would have spent on a you know fancy vacation yeah. for yourself and put that into a company instead. And you get this sort of little mini degree uh, in business, which is, which is kind of cool. So Female Funders was all about trying to give women that experience, that idea of getting them to write that first check and having that be the start of something much bigger for them and for the people they would fund. And we built an education platform. So it was a lot of videos, a lot of events. I ended up writing a book for O'Reilly called Funded, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Raising Your First Round, which was a tool both for entrepreneurs, but for investors. And about a year and a half into that project, was having a lot of fun doing it, but also realized that I just had this itch to start something again and uh, ended up selling uh, female funders to Highline Beta, which is a venture capital firm here. It was, you know, uh, to call it, uh, you know, an acquisition would be like, an, like it's an overstatement. It was really just, you know, selling it to give a better custodian uh, to the mission and right. to make sure that as I lost focus, Going into starting another venture, it had someone who could really continue to push the mission behind what we were doing. And they've done an incredible job uh, in taking it over.
0: Yeah, I love the aspect of the give and take, because I truly believe that's not only where the learning comes as entrepreneurs, whether it be in investing, whether it be in mentorship. You know, I talk a lot about mentorship and the give and take about mentorship because everybody thinks that things like investing or mentorship or even being on a board of directors or an advise, an advisor group is all about just give, give, give. But I think so many people forget about the take part of that. As the individual, you learn so So much that you would not necessarily get to sit or have the time to sit at those tables and hear those conversations, be a part of those conversations. And 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 learn so much along the way, whether it be I know I have learned so much about company organizational structures, about culture, about so many things that I didn't know because I started my company at 19, also really young, and I hadn't worked in a big firm before. And we were kind of going by the seat of our pants. And so, as to what felt good and right to us and where what kind of organization we would want to work in, but I I, I take so much value in getting to know how others do a lot of things. And I think that that is really, really important. And like you say, a big part of all of that is that network building. You never know who you might need to call or who you want to tap the shoulders on. Like you just never know. And I really always think that you can never have a big enough network. And it it takes time and energy, but I love that you really realized that, that how important it was in your journey and how that support really helped you and how you could do that for others. So since then, what, what do you think that the obstacles that women face in particular when they are looking for funding are?
1: Yeah, and I would say that my thoughts on this ebb and flow with time, to, to, be, to be honest. I think that in the very early stages of building a venture, it can actually be a big advantage. There are so many programs that have been created probably in the last decade to support female entrepreneurs. And I think that being willing to take advantage of those opportunities, you know, there are going to be lots of things that, you know, it might be harder in a lot of ways, but I think that if you're willing to embrace the opportunities that have been created for female entrepreneurs, um, you can make it a level playing field to some degree. So whether that's grant funding, I can't even count the number of times that I was the only woman on a panel and look around and I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm here because I'm a woman, but that's Okay. I am here and I am being able to get exposure, and I get to, you know, I could probably get first meetings sometimes easier because there are, this is on the funding side, there's a lot of investors that are attempting at least to diversify their portfolios. I think there's still a lot of gender bias and whether that actually goes all the way through and whether you actually end up getting the check. But I think it's kind of from the perspective of how to look at it positively as an entrepreneur, I think there are, there are a lot of opportunities that you can still take advantage of to make it a loving level playing field.
0: I think that it's really not only brave and honest of you to be actually, to actually admit that because too many people don't admit, especially I think women, whether, you know, they be women or whether they be a part of, you know, the BIPOC community or any other, you know, racialized community, even is that, that they don't always want to acknowledge the fact, and I will be the first to say the same thing, is that, yeah, if I got my foot in the door and whatever door that was that I was knocking on, and I got to be a check mark in a box that they were looking for, I didn't care how I got my foot in the door as long as I got it in and I was willing to take it definitely and I know you know that can be controversial sometimes people say that wow well, that's not fair and this and that well you know what I don't have I didn't have a lot of other advantages <laughs> being <a> young <laughs> Indian woman as an entrepreneur so if there are even now if there are some ways that I can get my foot in the door and sit at that table and get some opportunities that are brought to me because I'm check marking a box for somebody. Great. I will take that. It's up to me, and I believe in a meritocracy definitely afterwards to prove that I deserve to be there and that I can give, you know, give back and 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 not only help support, you know, that organization, but i do think that i agree with you in that whatever advantages that you can find uh like it, whether it be grant funding or whether it be programs as a startup entrepreneur take them all like don't because there's already so much going against you rather than for you so if you can find a couple of things that 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 give you you know a step up never mind a leg up i would <laughs> I, I encourage people to take it
1: yeah exactly and i think You know, there, there are so many things that I think like we could probably talk on and on about the things that are challenges, but I think that entrepreneurs are naturally so resilient and Mm -hmm. they really try to make the best out of a situation. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, I think starting a company is hard and it's hard for me to look at my journey and say, well, this was because I was a woman and that's why this was hard or it was just because starting companies is really hard it's sometimes it's hard to to parse it all out so like you said i'm just going to i'm going to take what i can and i'm going to run with it
0: <laughs> right and then so next we come to sheertex uh, where you decided to fix the problem of pantyhose that constantly rip and so sheertex then revolutionized pantyhose by creating the unbreakable pantyhose which is quite fascinating to me still and so Was the Unbreakable Pantyhose the first solution that Sheertex wanted to solve? Is that how it was born?
1: It was definitely what Sheertex was built around. Um, That said, it was the last thing I thought I was going Mm -hmm. to do. So when I sold ShopPocket, I sold it to PCH, which was one of the world's largest um, manufacturers. And They make things like connected devices and accessories, really, really interesting company. And kind of similar actually to my experience at Ecobee, I found myself just in the hardware and connected things space, very high-tech manufacturing. And as much as I had fallen in love with manufacturing and fallen in love with the process of creating a product, I'd also become pretty jaded about the fact that so many of the things I was watching people work on seemed like technology for technology's sake, as opposed to solving any sort of problem. And after email funders, I was ready to jump into something. And I actually jumped into a real estate uh, technology kind of initiative first. I even incorporated it. The idea was that I was going to buy a resort and I was going to chop it into being the world's first, basically Airbnb powered resort and build out a technology platform around it. And I got probably five months into that. I'd even started doing my real estate license. Meanwhile, in the background, I had this just idea that pantyhose were really annoying and I was solving it more as a, like a passion project then as a company, because I really didn't think it was going to be solvable. And about six months into both realized that the big idea was actually ShareTax was actually this hosiery company and decided to go all in on that and abandoned the, the real estate project that I had thought was the actual idea.
0: And so I've always believed that the best businesses, not only as far as profit goes, longevity goes, revenues go, are the ones that are solving a problem. And and the entrepreneurs that solve a problem are the ones that are going to win. And so talk to me about the process of how you not only started, because I have watched your Kickstarter videos uh, (laughs) more than a couple of times, and they're quite fantastic. So to make the decision to fund your company with a Kickstarter campaign, the crowdfunding platform uh, to launch and raise capital. Uh, how did you make that decision?
1: So the very first prototypes of the ShearTechs knit that became our unbreakable pair of pantyhose um, were pretty horrible. They looked more <laughs> like cheesecloth than pantyhose. We had taken fibers that were from ballistic grade applications miniaturize them into what was white, not stretchy, broke every machine that you'd put it on and like just did not look at all like hosiery. And in order to solve all these problems, how do we color it? How do we make it stretch? How do we make it finer? Um, We simply needed capital to be able to do this. And The fiber also was probably two orders of magnitude, more expensive than nylon. So even just in terms of materials to be able to experiment and make some prototypes was going to be incredibly expensive. So I knew I needed a little bit of money and I started with raising an angel round and then we got into Y Combinator. And over the course of that year... I also realized that this was going to be really hard to manufacture, not the kind of thing that I would easily be able to outsource. And I also realized that in manufacturing it, we were probably going to be trying to figure out things that were you know, very unique to us that we probably needed to be able to protect and mm-hmm. decided that we should actually set up our own manufacturing facility. And that is not cheap. No. Uh,
0: so
1: <laughs> we ended up raising $4 million Coming out of Y Combinator and use that to set up our very first factory. And we launched the product. This was now two years after I had started. And I think we outgrew that first factory in six months. It was just insanity. And I probably caused most of the insanity, but I knew that we needed to grow quickly in order to, you know, it's kind of silly, but bring in more capital in order to be able to grow more, it was kind of this beast that needed to get fed. And we grew really quickly, and we ended up raising um, just a year after that first round, a $10 million Series A, um, and we used that to move into Canada's largest hosiery factory. Uh, It's about 115,000 square foot facility in Montreal. So I picked up my life and made this whole decision, probably six weeks, moved everything to to Montreal. And all of a sudden we had this clock, like we had to basically earn our right to this factory. Like we were making 3000 units a month in a building that could probably support two 20 million a year. So this was not going to be sustained. You were all in. (laughs) I was all in. You couldn't have been more all in. And we ended up uh, having about 10 people come with us uh, from our first factory to Montreal. And in the span of 60 days, we grew from 10 people to 120 people. And everyone was reporting to, I think, two or three people in the building. It was chaos. But we also grew from about a hundred thousand to over a million in sales in the same a month, a month in sales in the same sixty day period. We ended up raising a series B, and this all happened within like three months. And we're on the other side of the series B, and we're taking a deep breath. We're like, okay, we've gotten ourselves to the scale that we deserve to be in this building. We've raised our thirty million dollars series B all is good. Like let's build a management tier. Let's really just sort this. 60 days later, COVID hits and manufacturing gets shut down in Quebec. And we have a whole new set of challenges that we have to face. So it's been this just incredible journey, but we've been so lucky to have this customer base. That's just really, really been there from the beginning, from that Kickstarter, right? Mm -hmm. And the Kickstarter was something I really wanted to do to validate that there was a market. We didn't really need the money, but Mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure people wanted this. It felt like something people wanted, but I wasn't really sure. And if I'm going to be really honest, I don't think that the Kickstarter actually... Proved much more to me than the fact that the market wasn't going to be as easy to turn as I thought. Mm. I thought we were going to launch on Kickstarter and do millions on Kickstarter because this was so obvious. And instead, it taught me that you know we're going to have to teach people, we're going to have to build Mm. their trust, we're going to have to get the price right, and this thing that I think oftentimes people look at and they're like, "That's so obvious," and hosiery. It was hard every step of bringing the customer along from that journey. They wanted to be there, but we had to show them we had to build that trust. We had to improve our products pretty much every month since we started shipping to make sure we're meeting them where they are. But now um, yeah, it's been quite quite the ride for us.
0: And so how did you. At scale then with with so many parts of that journey that you had to do. Not only, you know, that that's a feat for marketing because you had to not only tell people what it was, but how it worked, why it was worth the money that you were charging. And, you know, just so many other pieces to this puzzle as to that that information piece, but then also finding the customers. And then, you know, if you were standing in front of me in Dragon's Den, I would say to you, and I think all my fellow dragons would say, well, how do you bring them back? If it's unbreakable, then you're going to have to have unbelievable scale and growth and margins and efficiencies in, and then customer satisfaction in order for them to come back to buy some other colors, some other designs, some other products, like the R&D side of your company will have to grow too. So, So how did you manage not only growing your existing customer base, but then bringing back the people also that you'd already educated.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, why is anyone ever going to need another pair? Why would anyone ever buy it at this price? Hosiery is <laughs> a declining market. This is an irrelevant category. All the things um, I would say to you. Like, <laughs> it's just like all of you those heard things. It all. Yeah. We've, we've heard it a million times over. This has never been a, a sexy business to, right. <laughs> to try to pitch. <laughs> But really, the way that I would have answered that question about the disposability, and you know, people used to buy this a lot. Why won't? Why will they ever need another one? We said what we did is we took basically the last disposable thing that we wear. There is nothing else that we wear that is disposable, and we've True. turned it into something that is more like socks and underwear. Do you replace your underwear? I hope so. Right. Um, so. The are, pantyhose are quite similar. We don't expect that this is going to be, you know, the one pair forever, but we expect mm-hmm. to move it from a disposable cycle to a more normal apparel cycle. And I mean, I will admit, I really made that up when I was pitching, but <laughs> it ended up proving to be pretty true. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, so we now have our customers, A, building sort of collections of different colors and different patterns um, mm-hmm. that they can wear different days of the week or with different styles. But also, you know, and we're, we're just seeing this on a few customers, but they want you know, a refresh or they want whatever it might be, kind of like you would do in underwear or socks as a category. So the, the retention piece is something we obviously care about as a, a marketing perspective, but it's never been a massive challenge for us. It's something that we've always seen it as a problem because our investors early on brought it up. So we were hyper paranoid. Mm-hmm about it. And we were always launching new styles and new products to ensure
0: that this wasn't going to be a problem for us. Thank you so much, Catherine, for your time today. I really do appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you to everyone for listening today. And thank you to Catherine for coming on the show and sharing the insights of your journey. If you enjoyed today's episodes, make sure you follow the podcast. And while you're there, rate us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us a ton. Tune in next time for an all-new episode of the Manjeet Minhas podcast. Cheers.